Hi, welcome to the Vine Church podcast, where this week we are privileged to have Pastor Aaron Dowds giving a great message. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. Megan Trainer sang, it's all about that bass. And I believe she got it wrong. I reckon it's all about that grace. And um, if we could maybe have the timer on. I'm not going to sing. It's, uh, you know, I've been given some advice, which is stick to your lane. So I'm not going to sing. It's all about that grace. But Harry, feel free to put that together into one of your songs. And you can maybe treat us one Sunday. All about that grace. David, if we're good to go with the recording, please. Okay. All about that grace. I'm going to read your story. If we could have the first PowerPoint slide up, please. Thank you. Lovely. I'm all set. One of Jesus' stories about grace made it into three different Gospels in slightly different versions. This is from a book called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And um, my favorite version, he says, though, appeared in another source entirely. The Boston Globe's account in June 1990 of a most unusual wedding banquet. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered the meal. The two of them poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, and pointed to pictures of the flower arrangements they liked. They both had, they both had expensive taste and the bill came to $13,000. And after leaving a check for half that amount as a down payment, the couple went home to flip through the books of wedding announcements. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little longer. When his angry fiance returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said, and told the story. You've got to read the accent, eh? Stick to your lane, stick to your lane. Uh, and told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to $1,300 back. You have two options, to forfeit the rest of the down payment or go ahead with the banquet. I'm sorry, really, I am. It seemed like crazy. But the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout. Ten years before, this woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She had got back on her feet, found a good job, and set aside a sizable nest egg. Now she had the wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston tonight on the town. And so it was that in the June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it has never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom, she said, and sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. That warm summer night, people we were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off the cardboard dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvre, however you say that, to senior citizens, 
propped up by crutches and aluminium walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalks outside and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake, and danced to big band melodies late into the night. How you behave as a Christian is directly related to what you believe God is like and what you believe about who you are. What is God like to you? See, you must understand that you were created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. You must understand that when he formed you in your mother's womb, he made you fearfully and wonderfully. You must understand that what happened to you when you decided to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to follow him, to make him Lord and Savior, and when you decided to become a Christian, if you have done that yet, and if not, I want to give you opportunity today. Now, we don't serve God to gain his acceptance. We are accepted, first blank on your sheet, so we serve him. That's a huge difference. You are accepted, so we serve him. We don't follow him to be loved. We are loved, so we follow him. Huge difference. It's not what we do that determines who we are, who we are. It is who we are that determines what we do. We all want to change. We want to become nicer and better people. And I don't know about you, but it's a struggle sometimes. Sometimes you get really disappointed with yourself. You think to yourself, I should be better than this by now. I shouldn't be behaving like this by now. I shouldn't be struggling with this uh, temper by now. I've been a Christian all my life. Surely I should be nicer by now, but I, I, I battle, I struggle, I struggle with my inadequacies, I struggle with my weakness, I struggle with my temptations. Is there anybody else out there, or is it just me? I struggle with um, being nice sometimes. I struggle with desires for revenge sometimes. I desire wrong desires. But we want to be nicer people, don't we? We want to badly overcome our weaknesses, our addictions, such as anxiety or fear, lust or insecurity. We want to grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit and become nicer, more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patience, and yet sometimes our hearts feel troubled. But the great news and the great relief is that you are not the one that can change you. Have you realized that yet? You are not the one that can change you. The Holy Spirit on your sheep, the Holy Spirit is your master sculptor. And transformation is his business. He's in the business of transformation. But the Holy Spirit, your master sculptor, requires your cooperation. He does require your cooperation, but ultimately, it's his work. The transformation is his process. So we must move our focus from effort alone to trying to change yourself, to trust and cooperation with the master sculptor 
who wants to change our hearts and clean the cup from the inside out by his Holy Spirit and allow the master sculptor to change us. Hebrews 12 verse 14 says, make every effort or pursue to be holy. Without, no, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. To be holy means to be set apart. And it says to make every effort. And that is our cooperation. We would be foolish to think that effort on our part is not essential or effort on our part is not important or not necessary. Of course it is. Effort is required to be holy, to be set apart, to be the person that God wants us to be. It requires our effort. It requires sustained effort, continued effort, day-by-day effort to, ma- to move away from bad influences, to make good choices, to move away from bad practices, and to engage with the healthy practices. We would be foolish to think that our effort is not important. But this is where most Christians get it wrong. This effort must be anchored, grounded, and based upon the grace of God. Grace on your sheets and your personal discipline go hand in hand and provide the opportunity for the master sculptor of the Holy Spirit to do his work of transformation in you. But what is grace? What is God's grace? And have you ever experienced the power of grace? I remember at high school in first year, we thought it'd be fun. Someone taught me a trick how to make people faint. There's a special technique that you can make your friends faint. And when somebody did it on me, I was so amazed because I didn't believe that you could do it. And when I, when I found this trick, I, I wanted to try it on everybody. I wanted to show all my friends, when you have good news, you have to share it. It'd be selfish not to. So I had to uh, show my friends and, and say, hey, I bet I can make you faint. And like, no, you can't. Yes, I can. So uh, uh, on and on it went. And uh, on, I remember we Willie Drummond in the corridor waiting on our chemistry teacher arriving. Uh, probably Willie Drummond because he was the other smallest boy in the school, so he was probably the only person I could manage it on. Here, Willie, I can make you faint, and he was lying on the chemistry floor, and the Mrs. Sergeant starts walking up, and me and I say, quick, quick, get him up, and so we're propping him up and walking him into the classroom, trying not to let Mrs. Sergeant, and we managed it, we managed to get him to his seat somehow. And um, anyway, the next day, Someone came to my class and says, Mr. Bonner, the rector wants to see you in his office. And I honestly thought I'd won that art award because that week I'd been doing an art poster and I was convinced I'm getting an art poster. He says, one thing, you have to get your brother, Justin, out of class such and such. You need to go up to the huts. So I knocked the door, can uh, Justin go to Mr. Bonner's office, please? And all the class went, ooh, somebody's in trouble. And so me and Justin are toddling off and he goes, I know what this is about. you're in so much trouble. I'm like, what? I'm getting art prize. He's like, no, this is about making people faint. You, I had nothing to do with it. I can't believe you always drag me into get into your mess. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So anyway, goes in and absolute grilled by the rector. He was just went to absolute town. He had me in tears. He was just like, you're the worst people. How could you? There's people born. Your value of life, you value nothing. There's people that would give anything for life. Wait till your father hears. Wait, oh, wait till your father. I'm going to phone him now. And wait when you get home. So he's like, phones my dad. And I, I was to go home at lunch and I was to see my dad and I was terrified. I'm like, oh man. I'm going to get grilled. I'm absolutely nailed. I stalled it as long as I could. I went down the town with my lunch money and I bought a Kyora watch. I think it was the only thing that was available for 99 pence. It was horrible. It was ghastly. It's Kyora watch. Got home and uh, 
burst into tears to my dad, and he's like, what's happened, son? Tell me about it. What's, what's going on? So I told him, honestly, Dad, I, I was a bit fun. Honestly, I didn't know I was trying to kill people. I don't, I don't intend to kill people. I'm like, I'm not a murderer, honestly. I'm not. I'm really not a murderer. I, I, honestly, it was just fun. We were having great fun. He understood. He listened. And his response completely um, shocked me. Because his response was to phone the rector up, demand a meeting to inform the rector about myself. He wanted to teach the rector what I was truly like. And he was angry at the rector for the way he had handled the situation. And literally, that was it. Did I ever make, have I ever since that moment made anybody faint again in my life? No. And it was a moment of grace. Did I deserve that? I probably did deserve punishment. Did I deserve to be shouted at? I probably did deserve to be shouted at. Did I deserve to, you know, be grounded? But I didn't. I got a moment of grace. And grace is so powerful. It's undeserved. It's undeserved favor. It's undeserved blessing. And it comes from the heart and character and nature of a perfect and loving father who gives what is not deserved because he loves us. And that is the power of of grace. Paul in Acts 20, 24 says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. But what is the wonderful grace of God? If you trace the root of the word grace or charis in Greek, you will find a verb that means I rejoice and I am glad. That is the beauty of grace. That is the power of grace. That is the transforming nature of grace. What it deposits, the fragrance and aroma, is one of delight. It's one of rejoicing. It leaves in the recipient to whom it is given. That is why the good news of Jesus Christ should make you glad. It is good news. In fact, grace may just be the most important word in the Bible. It's the very heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. A counselor, David Siemens, summed up his career in this way. It's on your sheets. Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. Number one, the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. The failure to understand, to receive, and to live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And if you truly grasped the grace of God, the grace of God that is revealed through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross for you that you received purely by faith and not by works, if we were able to grasp by the power revealing of the Holy Spirit, it is transformational. He then goes on to say, and the failure to give out. Because at first... Before we can give it out, the reason we struggle to give it out is because we're not living in the fullness of it. But oh, how our churches would be transformed. 
oh, how my house would be transformed. <laughs> because I fail at this, and I struggle with this, to give out that grace. But oh, how our houses, our homes, our marriages, our relationships, our churches, our cities, our nations, our workplaces would be transformed if we had lived in the abundance of His grace, rooted and built up on His love, His agape love, His unconditional love. And if we were able to give that out to others, He says the failure, He he goes on to say, the failure to give out that unconditional love that forgiveness and grace to other people. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way that we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated the level of our emotions. And that's why I started with week one talking about the honey has to be tasted. You can't learn about honey by academic uh, intelligence and reading, you have to taste and experience the goodness of the honey, the goodness of God, the goodness of His grace. Be uh, saturated in His grace. Daily receive His grace and His love for us and living out of that unconditional love in order that we can give it out to others. Alan and Sally and church, thank you very much for gifting me this wonderful book, The Lost Sermons of Charles Spurgeon. And in one of his first sermon is called, the first lost sermon from his journal is titled Adoption. And his fourth point on, under adoption is the excellency of it. And his first point under the excellency of it is, it's an act of surprising grace. I just love that phrase. And apparently they reckon he borrowed that phrase from a hymn by Isaac Watts. And there's a great hymn. And the hymn is just called Hymn 129. <laughs> the guy spent so much time writing it that he forgot to give it a title. Or maybe they didn't title it in those days. They're just like, what a disappointing title. <laughs> uh, anyway, surprising grace. Adoption. Our Adoption. And uh, you can get that in Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. Wow. Where did the initiative start? God decided he wanted you in his family. By bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. He wanted He desired you in his family. He desired, and that's why he's pursued you your whole life, whether you're aware or aware of or not. But that's why he pursues you by his grace. That's why he draws you by his grace. And then even in your darkest moments, your weaknesses and your struggles, he's after you. He's drawing people. And uh, very often people can't see God. But he is the initiative starts with him. He wanted to do it, and it gave him great pleasure. Wow, it gives the Father great pleasure to send His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross because such is His desire for you to be in His family. So we praise God for what? The glorious grace. We praise Him for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I think I'm just deciding to split this into two weeks, and I'll continue part B uh, when my 
uh, when I'm next on because I want to take my time and uh, to get, actually get through this. I'm going to have to start rushing it, and I really don't want to do that. So what I'm going to do is take my time and uh, do this in two installments. So I'll come back to it, okay? John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Wow. Grace and truth. And it talks about in Proverbs having this garland of grace and truth around your neck and carrying it. And that's where Christians are going wrong because they've got the truth and they're speaking truth, but they're forgetting the grace and the love that must be in the garland. Now, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world gathered to debate what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis happened to wander into the room and said, what's this rumpus all about? Rumpus? What is rumpus? Anyone know what rumpus is? Shout out if you know what rumpus means. It's just a great word. I like it. Rumpus, anybody? Carry on. What's all this nonsense, you lot? He was told they were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis answered, probably making him feel this small, oh, that's easy. <laughs> it's grace. So they had to have some discussion to see if actually C.S. Lewis got it right. And the experts had to agree that his easy conclusion was actually correct. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. You think about the other world religions, the love of God, the favor of God, the blessing of God, salvation, eternal life, access to God is um, earned. It's something you have to achieve. It's something you have to do. It's something you have to work your way up to, whether it's Buddhism or Islam. God's love unconditional is a revolutionary message of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ that would just um, when, and, and when it was preached initially in the, that culture would just come as such shocking news that the love of God is free as grace is free to all sociologists have a theory of the looking glass self and it's, it, it, it's, um, it says this, you become what the most important person in your life thinks you are. You become what the most important person in your life thinks you are. That's why our words are so important. Because if you s repeatedly tell your children you're useless, you are no good, you are giving them a self-fulfilling, you're giving them a, a prof prophecy that they will live up to. And um, I'm very interested that the teachers that, uh, in our school will um, not describe a pupil as um, bad or naughty, but say they have ill manners. Your, your manners are, they're, what, what they're saying is you, you, not, not who you are, but your behavior is inappropriate just now. They'll say you have, you have bad manners or you have rude manners, not you're a bad child. 
You're, you're so naughty, you're so bad, because when the most important person thinks of them, they actually will become, and there's, there's power in our words. Oh my goodness, as a parent, that makes me go, oh dear, sorry, sorry God about that. You know, we come back to His grace, we stand on His grace, and He knows we'll blow it, and He knows we say wrong things, and Clara does a wonderful job of reminding me, Dad, uh, that's not maybe how you should be talking right now. Um, remember, you're leading the church. I know. <laughs> I'm trying. I try my best. You become what the most important person thinks you are. Now, how would your life change if you made Father God the most important person in your life? What if Father God was the most important person in your life? That's called worship, true worship. How would your life change if you learned what this Father really thinks of you? So if he became the most important person, then you learned what he really thinks of you. And then how would your life change if you became the person that Father God actually thinks you are? How would your life change if you truly believed the Bible's astounding words about God's love for you? Coming back to that quote from Siemens, what did he say? Let me find it. Seeing as I'm not rushing because I've got two weeks to do this, might as well go back to it, take my time. He said, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of the most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these, the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional gr uh, grace and forgiveness. So how would your life change if you truly believe the Bible's astounding words about God's acceptance of you, his love for you, how he sees you, how he views you. If you looked in the mirror and if you saw what God sees. Because we look in the mirror and we see failure. We see struggle. We see no good. We see can't do it. Can't make it ordinary, weak. And why did he have to keep saying to Moses and to Gideon and to all these ones that looked in the mirror and saw themselves as they saw themselves? Not seeing themselves, but God saying, I see you, Gideon. You are a mighty warrior. Stop seeing your weaknesses. Stop seeing your failures. Stop seeing what you are not in yourself and start seeing who you are in me. And we'll get to part two, which talks about being justified freely by, his, uh, by faith, by his grace through faith. And that is so important that we can't understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ unless we understand Romans chapter 3, which is described as the heart of the gospel. But it's all about who God is, what he is like, what he has done when you put your faith in him, how he views you, and how he relates to you by faith. Philip Yancey says, grace means there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. nothing you can do to make God love you more. And so our works are not trying to make God love us more. He can't love you anymore. You're not trying to obey him to try and get him to love you more. 
You're not trying to read your Bible to get him to love you more, to earn his blessing, to earn his favor, so that he'll be good to you today and things will go well for you because you're already loved and you can't be loved anymore. You're already accepted and you can't be accepted anymore. His blessing and his favor is already upon you and nothing you do can gain his blessing or favor anymore in your life or anything you can do can reduce his, his, his blessing and favor on your life. Nothing you do can affect your relationship of adoption to the Father. That's why it's an act of surprising grace. Nothing we can do We can change the harmony of our relationship, but not the nature of our relationship. So that means if you're living in the house with your father, no matter what you do, you're always the son of your father. You may do things that uh, affect the harmony of your relationship, but it doesn't mean you stop being the son. It doesn't mean you come out of the father's protection. It doesn't mean he's not going to protect you if you get enough, if if someone starts picking on you. It doesn't mean he's not going to um, uh, uh, look after you. He's not going to chuck you out the house, is he? He's a good, good, perfect, loving father. So the nature of our adoption does not change by our behavior, but we can affect the harmony of it. And what we need to focus on is not the nature But the harmony, that's why I make every effort to be holy so that the harmony, we're in a harmonious, we have fellowship, we have unspoilt fellowship, and it does require our effort to come away from what is unhealthy and come away from the junk food and start planning and eating healthy healthy meals. So, I'm going to close in this story for today, and I've only done half my message Um, But that's good. I'll I'll be back in a few weeks to continue. So I'm going to close in this story, another story, and then we're going to get the worship band back up. So let me finish on this. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when, she, when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she had mentally rehearsed scores of time. She runs away. She had visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes it is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California may be her Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right. All along, she decides, our parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men will pay a premium. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folk back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She had a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? 
But by now she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. And after a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks at night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Well, sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night she lies awake listening for footsteps and all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city and she begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees blossom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that, that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it will get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. If I could just have the band up, please. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening, even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement rubbed, worn by thousands of tires and asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have here. 15 minutes 
to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice. If they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and great grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer generated banner that reads, welcome home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memory speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. You've not got time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. Let's stand here. Jesus told a story, and that's a modern day translation of the prodigal son. Let's close our eyes. And Jesus told that story to reveal the grace of God. He didn't give a theological lesson on the grace of God lest he kill the thing. He taught him parables and stories to reveal the nature of God. He is a good, good, loving Father. He deals with us not based upon our performance, but Jesus's performance. And today I wanna call you home today. If you've been living away from the Father's home, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a child of God today, He's done everything that you would come home from Him. Maybe you're rehearsing your speech right now and He's just saying, come home, my child, come home, come home. I want to be your Father. I want to, you to be my child. I want to look after you. I want to bless you. And I want things to go well in your life. And he gives an invitation now to come home because he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that we could receive surprising grace of being adopted as children into his family. So that we could relate to him as sons and daughters so may the Holy Spirit call you now may you feel the call of the Holy Spirit saying come my child come home come into my family you don't need to understand everything you don't have to work it out I'm just asking you to trust me trust what my son Jesus Christ did on the cross give your life to him turn your life around follow him he's a good good loving father and you're not only saved by grace but you must stand in grace every day and every moment of every day and you must be rooted and grounded in love. So some of us have got saved in grace and now we're living by performance. And Paul said, you foolish Galatians, you've come away from grace. So today I want to pray for you and if you would like to become a Christian today and come home to the Father's home today become a Christian receive forgiveness of your sins 
and receive eternal life which means you and the Father will live forever and you know what his grace is enough it says his grace is enough that means you've got struggles going on in your life just now you've got things you can't control you've got things you're disappointed about and you can't do it on your own strength but he says my grace is enough my love is enough my strength I give is enough for you so congregation just say this prayer quietly under your breath dear Lord Jesus dear Father in heaven I thank you for your love I thank you for your grace I thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross that I may receive surprising grace that I may receive adoption into your family Lord Jesus today I decide to trust you I decide to tr stop trying on my own stop trying on my own to change self and I come to you and ask that you would forgive me for living my life without you for not making you the first love and not worshiping you forgive me father but today I come home I come home I come home I come home father and I receive your love right now I receive your forgiveness and I thank you Jesus thank you Jesus I need you I choose to follow you today in Jesus name and as we keep our eyes closed if you said that prayer for the first time today just put your hand up nice and high put your hand up nice and high if anyone said that prayer thank you anybody else say that prayer today for the first time thank you Jesus father let us walk by grace let us live in grace let us stand in grace and let us be distributors of the fragrant aroma of the love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that father we would cooperate with the master sculptor and Holy Spirit you would begin to transform us from the inside out not by effort not by striving and not by works but by simple trust by simple surrender by simple saying God I've tried and I can't do it I need you change me give me self-control God I can't control this temper I can't control my anger I can't control this thing inside me set me free Lord Jesus for it was for freedom that Christ has set you free let's sing let's sing that worship let's sing let's sing with hearts of gratitude let's sing with all our hearts response to the wonderful grace and love of the Father.